Hello and welcome to the Mechanics Institute Review podcast. My name is Peter J. Coles and I'm the Managing Editor of Content for Mirror Online. For this episode, we are going to talk to writer Rob True about his debut collection of stories, Gospel of Aberration. Rob True was born in 1971. Unable to read or write very well, he left school with no qualifications and struggled to hold down a job at tyre fitters, factories and warehouses. Hospitalised in his early 20s with a psychotic illness, he didn't work for 11 years. After many years of working on building sites, age 40, his wife taught him how to use paragraphs and punctuation and he began writing stories. Since then, Rob has been published in The Arsonist, Open Pen, Low Light, Oculum, Burning House Press, Litro, and his debut work, Gospel of Aberration, has been published with Burning House Press this year. You can find him on Twitter at Rob True Stories. Welcome, Rob. Hello, Peter. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So, the first thing we're going to do is hear a story of yours called... Uh, what was it called? Dusty Nowhere. Dusty Nowhere. Yeah, that's okay. Cool, cool. At a family celebration, her family... I get drunk and call one of her cousins a prick. This man is a fucking prick, I'm not joking. Awkward, irritating, a real creep. Anyway, I told him. They started droning on about some shit, mundane things as usual. The sort of things people say when they got nothing to say. How's things? Yeah, alright. How's work? Plays better. He looks at me in awkward silence, not sure of me or himself. You're a prick. I don't know why I said it. Everyone's embarrassed and we've got to leave. As we say goodbye, my wife apologises and makes excuses to one of her aunts for me calling her son a prick and we leave. So we're in the car and she's telling me off. Why did I have to behave like that? How I'm such an embarrassment. It went on some. Pull over, I shout, as we pass some shops. I get out of the car and go into the off-licence. From the fridge, I grab a four-pack of beers. Just these, I say, at the counter, and pay for the beers. I then strip completely naked, crack open a beer and start drinking in the shop. I'm laughing and the shopkeeper's shouting at me, Get out of my shop, fuck off! I walk out the shop without my clothes. My wife is shouting at me now, Where's your clothes? What the fuck are you doing? The car wheel spins, she drives off fast without me, leaving me standing by the side of the road. I stand there drinking my beer as I look round and the shops are gone. I'm in the middle of nothing in a desolate landscape, a dual carriageway in a dusty nowhere. The sky changes and the clouds get dark. The wind blows hard and the clouds move fast above me, streaking across the sky long and thin. Some are swirling in huge spirals. Objects come flying through the sky leaving a trail behind, like coloured laser beams. Huge pink and green luminous discs of light are flying above me in formation. My hair is blowing around my face in the wind, and I'm drinking my beer and laughing as I watch.
The Gospel of Aberration is a collection of short stories which explores addiction, abuse, psychosis and redemption. It is Rob True's first collection to be published. So, Rob, when I asked uh, author Liddy Dunn, who we just had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, if there was anyone she could think of that I should have on the podcast, your name immediately came up. She said, you had a fascinating story to tell about how you came to write The Gospel of Aberration. And how you can, or how you came to write at all, really. Mm. And I wondered if you could share that with us, how you came to be, how you came to be a writer. Yeah, that's cool. Thanks, Lily. Um, it 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 happens. It just sort of happened on its own. It it it, it was uh, partially a decision, but it, it seemed to just sort of morph naturally. I I um I've I've always been a good verbal storyteller, and. Uh, I came from a background of people where there'd be a group of us sitting about, smoking spliffs, drinking, whatever. You know, we were all bandits. You got thugs, alcoholics, drug addicts, dealers, thieves. And there'd be like one or two of us that could tell a good story, spin a yarn, right? Now, everyone had a story, but you've got to be good at telling it, you know, so for it to be entertaining. So, you know, there was an art in that. So my storytelling came from that background. Later on in life, down the pub, I'd be spinning my yarns and people used to say, particularly a couple of my cousins, oh, Rob, you should write a book, man. And I always used to say the same thing, I can't fucking write. It's right, you can swear, it's fine. Cool, cool. Just... We'll put explicit. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, I thought, one day I thought, oh, do you know what, I really want to write. I don't know why, I just fancied it. But I, I didn't have the mechanics of the language, didn't know anything, I didn't know how to do the, the most basic of things that you learn in primary school. When I was in primary school, I got put in a remedial class for reading because they, they found me out, I couldn't read. Everyone else could read, I was in the juniors. I tried to blag it, got away with it to an extent till they focused on me and got caught out. When they put me in a remedial group, I remember looking out up and down the table thinking, you know what, I can't read, but I ain't like this lot. No offence to anyone, but they put me in uh, as in a class as though I was unable to learn anything. And it pretty much remained like that through my school. I did, I did learn to read and write, but it was painfully slow. I never got the mechanics of the language. I always wanted to read books. I always felt like they was um, I had a, I had an instinct that they were they were somehow sacred. Like had this unaccessible knowledge that everyone else seemed to be able to access except me. And the writing seemed like a code to me that I couldn't break. The, it, I mean, it was like like symbols and ciphers to me. Um, eventually, I cracked the code, and like I say, it was very slow and painful. I did try to read through my twenties, but again, it was very difficult. Started to get a little bit better with practice in my 30s, but by the time I was 40, I'd probably only read about if 10 books in my life, if that. Um, one of the things was, is I had to read the same thing over and over again to get it, because I'm dyslexic. But I didn't know that when I was a kid. There weren't no help for it in them days. They didn't realise till it was too late. And uh, one day I said to my missus, I was, I was 40 years old, and I said to her, do you know what, I'm gonna write a story. And I sat down and wrote a story, and it was crap. It was unintelligible. It, it couldn't, no one else could have read it. Uh, I tried writing it in, 
with a pen, but I can't hold a pen properly, so that weren't working. You couldn't read, I couldn't even read my own writing. But then fortunately, we had the computers by then and laptops and all that, so I had spell check, but I still didn't get the mechanics. And I said to her, like, what's wrong with it? She goes to me, look, read it to me how you want it to be read. So I started reading it back to her, and she goes, okay, you need a comma here. That's a full stop. That's a new paragraph, so on, so on. How that came about was a funny story because um, I did actually submit one of my stories to an online forum. And uh, <laughs> it was one, it was a sort of thing where you submit a story and then people comment on it. And I submitted this story, it got absolutely trashed. And people were actually quite rude, right. like, quite horrible. I remember thinking, like, I'd like to see you say that in my face, you know what I mean? But um, there was people suggesting I was a moron, all sorts. Someone jumped to my defence saying, uh, actually, this give me a little bit of heart because they said, actually, this is really creative. You just need to put in the punctuation and grammar for him. Uh, much to the amusement of my wife, somebody said, um, I'll leave him alone. I don't think his first language is English. Oh, dear. <laughs> so anyway, cutting a long story short, she taught me how to use punctuation, paragraphs, all that sort of stuff. And I've never had anyone sit down with me one-to-one -one and show me how to do it for all 40 years. And um, she taught me at a primary school level, right back to basics. And it took me, I'd say it took me two or three years to start getting the hang of it. But I was just, at that point, I was just determined. And, and uh, at that stage, I was, write, I was just writing tons of stories. A lot of them were from memories of things that happened when I was younger, a bit like what I described earlier when we were sitting about in a group, you know, just smoking and drinking and telling stories. So-and-so beat up so-and-so. What's the name? Got off with so-and-so. Some elaborate theft that was carried out. Some mad escape from the old bill. All sorts, right? And I was just writing them down. I was writing a lot of them pretty much how I would have told them verbally. Which was nice. I quite liked that. But I, I, I since learned that there was a craft in literature and you couldn't really tell a story exactly how you tell it verbally. However, I do like to keep that aspect to it. What do you think the difference is then between a ver verbal storytelling and, and literature? What did you discover? Um, I, do you know what? I've never really thought what the, what the exact um, difference is to put a name on it. It's just something in the... It, the thing is, my, my writing is not far from verbal storytelling. I, quite, I, I like to stay true to that sort of atmosphere in the writing at times. Other times I go off into a sort of more literary feel for, for my sense. But um, there is a difference. There's, I mean, when you're in a pub standing around with a few geezers, for a start you've got your hand actions. Secondly, they can see your face. So you've got a bit of expression in it. Um, but not only that, because it's not written down, you can you can repeat words, you know, and still make them effective. It's quite a different skill. In, in literature, in, in storytelling on the page, it's more of a craft in a different way. It's um, it's more. I find it more of a visual craft. To me, writing stories is like doing magic. I feel like you. I feel. I feel like I'm writing. I feel like I'm drawing symbols on a page that can be converted into someone's head into images, right, and stories. And 
you can touch people with this. I, you know, when I when I had this book came out, I had an artist contact me and say they'd uh, done drawings based on on some of the stories in there, which was which was a real honour to be honest. I love that. Um, you know, that's art creating art. That's magic creating magic. I think that's very true. And I think one of the most interesting things I found when reading your stories is that you move, you, you easily slip the characters from very sort of realist scenes. They suddenly slip into these sort of magical realist scenes, as, as with Dusty Nowhere, the, the story you just read. Yeah. And I wondered why you chose to write in this way. Is it just the, the natural way that the story goes for you? or, or the, This book really is about schizophrenia. It's. Uh, I don't know if that comes across obviously or not. A lot I think of it does. It does. A lot, I mean, a lot of the stories you might think are oh, these stories are about drugs or crime or whatever. They're not. They're about schizophrenia. What I've done in this book is I've written it through the eyes of the protagonist. So even when I've written it third person, I've written it very close to the protagonist's point of view. So you're seeing things as they happen through his perception. And in doing this, what I've tried to do is, if, if he's ex- experiencing delusion or uh, some sort of hallucinatory nightmare vision, I've, I've written it as though that really, is really happening. Because when you experience these things, that's how, you, that's how they appear to you. Um, even if you realise that it's not real, the instant apparition of the hallucination or delusion is that it is real. It, it is a kind of reality, and it's actually quite disconcerting and disorientating for somebody to say, "Oh, Rob, this ain't real." It's like the carpet's pulled from under your feet. Very confusing, quite frightening. Um, so, 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 I've tried to write the book in this sense that he's experiencing things as a reality, and therefore that's why you get this uh, continuous creeping horror through the book because. Some of the stuff that happens is might seem magical or interesting, and some of it's just downright horrific. Uh, and a lot of it is horrific. Um, you know, you, when you're experiencing hallucinations, and they could be shadow people or winged creatures attacking you, there could be a feeling of doom just haunting you constantly. It could, you know, it could be any anything. Could be voices, but it's quite frightening quite horrifying at times. And that's what I've tried to convey in this book. I think that comes across very, very clearly. Cool. I think one of the, I would love you to get rid of it, it's a bit too long for the podcast, is your is the story, The Tunnel, what's it called? Oh, the Tunnel of Dark. Long Dark Tunnel. Long, the Long Dark Tunnel. Yeah. Which is, if you want to describe it, let's describe it a little bit, but the, the character enters the longest tunnel in southeast England. That's right. The longest train yeah. tunnel. That's right. And starts walking through it. And that, to me, it was one of the one of the best stories that I've read in a very long time. It was oh, thank you. Good. And what happens in the story is that the character walks through, and it's pitch darkness, and they're terrified they're going to be killed by a train. And yeah, they're bouncing off the walls trying to find the light at the end of the tunnel, and they. Well, I'm not going to ruin it because you have to read the yeah. story to find out. No, that's right. Uh, yeah, the horror in that story is pretty palpable. I reckon. Mm-hmm. Um, Believe it or not, that's actually based on a true story. Yeah, um, again, I won't give the end away, but I've given it a little twist on the end. Um, because funny enough, when I when I originally wrote that story, I wrote it as it happened, and um, 
a friend of mine, Gene Farmer, who, who uh, pretty much introduced me to writing uh, in terms of he, he lent me books when I started out, showed me who to read, give me a bit of criticism on my first stories. Um, it's got a genuine interest in literature. So he sort of introduced me to the whole thing. And when I showed him this story, he said it was great, but he said it had more legs to it. Right? He said I could take it further. And at first I was a bit reluctant because I quite liked the story as it really happened because truth be told, it was terrifying anyway. Right? It was a, it was a very strange experience. And um, I developed it somewhat. I gave it a little bit more of a sort of mythical edge to it. When I took it to Miggy, when, when, when he was editing the book, he threw it back at me and he goes, he said, this story's really good, but he goes, it's still got more legs to it. He goes, it, he goes, there's something in this that you're not fully exploiting. So I took it back and messed about the end and uh, turned it into a mythical, horrific Twilight Zone type ending. Yes, you get. Yeah. yeah. I just, I never, uh, it's very rare in literature that you get that sort of sense of doom. Yeah. Especially literary fiction as well, which you definitely is right, you're definitely writing. It's not genre, it's definitely literary fiction. Yeah. And oh, yeah, that's what I'm going for, yeah. Utter doom and this utter despair that you get from reading that story is, it was powerful, but it was, fun, it was fantastic. That, I'm glad you said that because that doom and despair, I've, I've tried to convey that throughout. But what I've tried to do, through the doom and despair, I've also tried to give it a tilt of dark humour. Because my attitude to life, um, to my life anyway, a lot of my life has been in despair and doom. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm schizophrenic, I've been all my life. And, you know, I've gone through some real difficult times, but... Throughout all of that, I've always found the best way to look at everything is just to laugh. Because everything's ridiculous. Everything's just meaningless and pointless and funny and absurd. So, you know, when 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 a shit is a fan and things really do bottom out, I just stand there laughing, you know. I might have tears rolling down my eyes or everything might be burning down around me, but I'm just laughing. Is that why the character at the end of Dusty Nowhere starts laughing? Yeah, awesome. yeah. And that's it. And, you know, that, for me, that doom and despair, the inevitable end to that doom and despair is laughter. Is that because you know it's going to end? That the, the doom and despair is going to be over at some point? So that you're just going to laugh through it until then? Or is it... My motto is, is it'll be all right in the end because you die. You know, nothing <laughs> yes. matters after that, yeah. does it? You know, you're all going to turn to dust in 200 years. No one will ever know I was even here, so... <laughs> okay, on that, on that note, let's hear another story. Um... I would like to hear you read a story called After Work, if that's okay. After Work. Yeah, no problem. Got to find it. Indicating a turn right and some old bird's too scared to pull out the road where I want to go down. There's barely enough room for two motors and she's right in the middle. No chance of squeezing past in a transit. We're holding up the traffic and people start hooting, but there's nowhere to go. Paul loses his temper with a beeping and jumps out to threaten the driver behind. Leave it, Paul, I can't be bothered. I see a green man crossing up ahead. Press the button. What for? The traffic will stop and she'll pull out. He presses the button and jumps back in. Lights go red, man turns green, traffic stops, old girl pulls away slow, 
and I'll swing the van into the narrow road. I like that. What made you think of that? Don't know. I'd never have thought of that. Paul leans out the window and does a mad bird-like screech at a group of nice-looking girls. They don't look impressed. I laugh at their reaction. They didn't like my mating call. Paul always makes the journey home more amusing. Further along we get stuck in traffic. A young couple walking along just ahead and the girl don't realise her short skirts got caught on her bag as she pulled the strap on her shoulder. It's pulled right up on one side and she hasn't got any knickers on. Maybe it's a string, but no knickers idea is better. For once we're grateful for the slow line of cars as we can see the soft bare cheek for longer. It's nice. Paul tells me about some geezer he knocked out in a fight the other week. I'm laughing and I look at him to say something, but he ain't there. It startles me more than if he'd appeared from nowhere. A familiar sense of uncertainty bursts inside me. Was he ever there? Did I drop him off? When did he stop being there? Was he even at work today? Hollow feeling and nothing's real. Fear makes my skin prickle and I grip the wheel tight. At home I try to relax and forget it. The missus makes me a cup of tea and dinner's ready early. She comes out of the kitchen with a serious look on her face. Darling, I need to tell you something. I can tell I'm not going to like it and she comes right up to me to speak. As she starts talking, I realise she's also upstairs listening in and I've caught her out. I put my hand on her shoulder and a finger to my lips and then point up. What? What are you doing? I'm aware somehow of the fact that she can't be standing in front of me and be upstairs listening, but it's very real. She's looking at me, waiting for an explanation of my rude interruption. She knows nobody else is here. I feel stupid under her questioning stare. I realise it can't be right. I thought you were upstairs spying on us, I say, feeling like an idiot. My voice is strange, awkward, and feels odd in my mouth, like the words are solid and my tongue's got bigger. I sound like a moron. She looks annoyed, shuts her eyes and turns away, disgusted at my peculiar atmosphere. She walks back to the kitchen and says nothing. I sit down and watch telly. The news is on and I can't quite understand it. I can hear the words, but they float meaninglessly around my mind, distant and distorted. She's trying to tell me the thing again, whatever it is, but I can't make sense of it at all. I hear the TV speaking to me clearly now, as I try to concentrate on her. Kill yourself, you're a cunt. Did you hear that? What? The TV talking to me, did you hear what it said? The TV talking to you? Yeah. Stop looking like that. You're looking through me, not at me. You look like a creep. I am a creep. You're scaring me. Did you hear it? Yes, you heard it saying that. No, I didn't hear the TV talking to you, freak. I don't know. I don't fucking know what's what sometimes. She gives me a cuddle. You're so strange, you weirdo. You're my freak. What on earth was I thinking when I fell in love with you? Love is a kind of madness. I do love you. Going to bed, I realise I left my phone in the van. I step out in the cool night air. Everything's sharp in the orange glow of a street light on a dark street scene. A little boy is standing alone, staring at me as I walk past. 
When I was a little boy out on his own this time of night, I looked back round and he's gone. The space where he stood, empty and strange, like something should be there. An explosion of fear with every step. Terror grips my heart. I feel it growing with each pace and I stop dead on the pavement. Taking a step back, the horror fades. I take another step backwards and it decreases again. One forward and fear blooms in the gut. One backward and it fades again. I become aware of what I'm doing and what it must look like if someone is watching out of a window. I swallow hard. Stop being a fucking pansy. Sort it out, you cunt. I boost my power and stride onto the van. Back inside, my wife is wiping off her makeup. What the fuck is wrong with you? What? Your pupils are like saucers. You look fucked. I see myself in the mirror. Pale face, tinted green. Eyes like black holes to another world. Are you alright? I'm having a strange day, sweet. I'm not right at the moment. Come on, let's go to bed. She takes my hand and leads the way. Thank you very much. That was uh, that was very very good. Cool. I, I, that story is, I think, is is so powerful because I think it highlights what you were talking about before uh, about the schizophrenia. Like the story, the story is about schizophrenia. Yeah. It's about the doom and the sense of uh, almost ghost. It's, it's almost like a ghost story that you're describing there. Yeah, it, it presents itself very much like a horror film. Um, my wife always says to me when because I, I, I don't jump when people jump. If someone jump at me and say boo, I've got no reaction. And if I watch a horror film, when everyone else is terrified, I'm usually laughing. And she always says I'm dead inside, but I'm not. What it is, I'm desensitised. Because I'm very often going through a very similar horror to what the character in a horror film is experiencing. So I'm used to it, you know. I wanted to talk about your use of dialogue in the stories because that was something that I just thought was brilliant it was really Thank really you. good it reminded me of I don't know if you've read really much Raymond Carver no I haven't yet because you have a very sort of similar way of using dialogue right which, which seems really realistic it seems like you're just taking exactly what's being said in real life and putting it into the text but of course you can't do that because normal no. speech is no. just, it's just nonsense when yes. you try to put it into text. That's right. Like, how, do you, how do you write dialogue? How do you do it? How do you do it so well? Do you know what? It's funny because I've been thinking about this myself recently and the only reason I've thought of it is because I've heard so many people saying how difficult it is and I find it quite easy. I don't know why that is. When I imagine a character whether I've lifted them directly out of real life or completely made them up, I find it quite easy to picture them in their totality. So for me, making them talk ain't a big problem. What I do is I imagine a conversation pretty much as a conversation would go, but then I craft it into the relevant information. I'm writing a novel at the moment, which I've never done before. And uh, all the conversations in there are all made up, but they're very much similar to these conversations, which are a mixture of some that I've sort of lifted from real life and some that I've made up. But obviously, even the made-up ones in Gospel of Aberration, I don't remember word for word what happened or what was said, so it's all crafted. Um, in the book I'm writing at the moment, all the characters are invented. I, I just sit there and picture them in my mind, and... 
I find that the lingo comes as easy as describing the room they're in. I don't know why that is. I just think it's because I've got a good imagination and I can picture them as a person, even though they don't exist. And by doing that, I can put them in conversation with another made-up person who I'm also picturing in their totality. And I can make them just have a conversation. But I, I can just do that in my head. But I can do that as I'm writing. I don't need to plan it. What I find that works best for me is to do it spontaneously like that. When, when I'm writing a conversation, I find often I'll use very short sentences. Because often that's, people do talk like that. Sometimes someone will go on a rant or a ramble. But it's, it's harder to do that in writing. I think what is more effective is short, quick, fire, you know, blasting sentences. Uh, you know, with a bit of sort of strutting pace to them. I like a pace in my writing generally. I think a lot of my writing is quite influenced by rock and roll more than it is literature. Okay. I like the pace all the time, you know. All the, you know, it's got a rhythm to it. In my head, certainly, whether other people read it the way I've intended it to be written, to be read, I mean, is another matter. But... I'm writing those things with a pace and I try to bring that into the conversation as well. And I think by doing that, it, it seems to work for me. I, I put it down. I mean, look, the thing is, right, when I, when I imagine a person, I don't know if you noticed in that, but when I write, when I describe a room or a person, I don't really describe their hair colour, their height, their size, the wallpaper, what colour the floor is. What I describe is the atmosphere of the room or the atmosphere of the person. And I think by doing that, you allow the reader to have an image thrown into their head that they naturally and instinctively create and fill in the blanks. And I think it's much quicker getting a story across like that. It's, it's very little waste in language. It's quite economical, but... To me, the atmosphere of a person or a room is much more important. The, I, I, will, I will tell you the colour of something if it adds to the atmosphere, but otherwise I won't. I think it's, much, it's a much uh, quicker and economic use of language to let the people imagine them themselves, and I think people prefer that. I, I think sometimes when someone's told that that person's blonde or dark-haired or frizzy hair or straight hair, sometimes they're thinking, nah, that don't seem right. Do you know what I mean? So if you don't tell them nothing like that, they can make it up themselves. And I think by doing that and me having a strong sort of picture of what they are and their atmosphere, maybe that makes a, maybe that makes the lingo come over more naturally. I don't know. So it's raw talent. That's, that's the key. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's the key to everything. For the final part of this podcast, what we usually ask is that the, um, the, the guest gives us the recommendation, um, recommendation of books so what's, what, what would you recommend? I've just finished a book that I absolutely loved by a writer called Anne Quinn. Do you know her? I don't know. She more famously wrote a book called Berg, which I've read and really enjoyed. <clears throat> but I've just read a book called Triptychs, and I, I really loved it. I, I get the impression from what I've read about that book that it weren't a favourite. Um, most people going about Berg. I mean, having said that, most people going about Berg. It's a bit underground anyway. It's uh, it's not well known, but she was one of them experimental writers on the back of the sixties and early seventies. I think she killed herself in her thirties in the in the early or mid seventies. But um, 
she wrote a few novels and uh, before she left and triptychs I've got them really well with it I, I think the reason people ain't keen on it is because it's actually again a book about I think it's about schizophrenia or something like that I know that she had an illness and was at times psychotic but that book to me describes a psychosis but it's not obvious and I think that's why people don't get on with it because it sort of goes all over the shop and it ain't necessarily linear or logical or comfortable, you understand? Um, but for me, I, lo- I absolutely loved it. You know, it rang a lot of bells for me, and I loved the language used in it, and I thought it was a brilliant book. Another book, and another author that I would recommend anyone to read is Anna Kavan. Do you know of her? I think I... What was the last book she wrote? She, uh, she's been, she died in the late 60s. She wrote a book called... Uh, famously wrote a book called Ice. Um, there's another version of that, which I prefer, and that's called Mercury, which is a little bit more obscure, but I'd say about it, I just prefer. Um, but I, I, with her, I actually prefer her short stories. She wrote an amazing book which was my introduction to her um, recommended to me by the the editor and publisher of Gospel Aberration the one and only Miggy Angel and uh, it was called Julia and the Bazooka and that's one of my all time favourite books Um, another favourite of mine is uh, Jesus Son by Dennis Johnson you know that one? I don't know that one either. Oh, fabulous book. You're picking all of the I'll write them all down for you. Well, yeah, but I mean, I'm not purposely picking them because no, they're no. obscure. They, that's, just, that's just what my taste is. I tend, to, I tend to... I'm a bit funny like that. I always like the one that no one else likes, you know what I mean? But I mean, they, these are fantastic books. If you can read Jesus' Son, Julian the Bazooka, Triptychs, for me, they're incredible books. I'd say they're in my top three. I'll tell you a funny story now, and... I know I'll get crucified by the women for this, but up until a couple of years ago, I'd never read a book by a woman, right? And I very ignorantly believed that I'd never enjoy one. And the reason for that is it's not it's not a completely ridiculous reason. Uh, the women I grew up with and around have always liked things like soap operas and reality TV, right? And if they read at all, they'd read things like Mills and Boone. So I just thought that that's what women were into. And when I saw like rom-coms and stuff like that that women liked, I just thought, well, there's not, they're not going to write anything that I'm going to be interested in, which obviously was an ignorant thing to think, right? And the reason I sussed it out, I, I caught myself out, because I, I, I remember looking in a bookshop window and seeing all these books by women that were being promoted and shoved in your face, and I just thought, they just look like a pie shite to me. And then I thought, but hold on a minute, who are the men I read? They ain't in the shop window either. And I only know about them because people know what I like and have recommended them to me. Or I've found them out by some obscure means of reference or discovered them yourself. But they're not the ones shining in your face as you walk in the bookshop. So I thought, I'm being ignorant here. There must be... I knew there was women that I liked and got on with. So I'm thinking, like, there must be stuff they've written that I liked. One of the things that showed me this was um, a writer called, called Xanthia Barker. Do you know her? Yeah, she's, right. um, she's just written a book for Open Pan, hasn't she? That's right, yeah. yeah. So I read a short story by Xanthia Barker a couple of years back, and that's, that is really what led me to think, do you know what, I like that, 
So there must be stuff by women I like. And then that led me to ask people, um, you know, I want to read something by a woman. Have you got any suggestions? And it, from there, two of my favourite books have ended up being by women. So it was a little bit of a turnaround in the last two years. Well, thank you very much for coming to today. It was really, really interesting. And thank you for uh, letting us read it because I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed oh, it. Cool, I'm glad I'm you liked really it. Really yeah. looking forward to your novel. Thank you. Excellent. Speak to us again then, maybe. Yeah, I will. I'd love to. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. Thank you. Fantastic. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you to Rob True for taking part in this podcast. And thank you for listening. If you like what we do here at Mirror Online and you'd like to support us, why not check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash mirroronline, where we have a ton of rewards aimed at supporting new writers. You can follow us on Twitter at MirrorOnlineBBK and hear previous episodes of the podcast wherever you listen to them.